text this morning as Mark comes up. It's, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you don't, there's one in the pew back in front of you. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, and Matthew 17, verses 22 through 23. Join me as we read the text together. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then the next chapter, 17, 22, and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Good morning, family. I'm glad you're here this morning. If it's your first time, welcome to UBC. My prayer this week has been that you would be introduced to Jesus, and I hope that you come to know Him and love Him and uh, worship Him one day. You know, this week has been a good week for me because as, I, as I've gotten to talk to a few people that went to Uganda, went to uh, Travis Burkhalter, they live in Columbia, I'm reminded again once how... How great it is that we're able to come, we're able to open God's Word, we're able to worship together, we're able to celebrate it as a family, and how gracious God's been to UBC. Even last week as Brad Wheeler becomes our senior pastor, I'm thankful. I'm thankful on what we're able to um, come together as a family and what our legacy will be in the future. It's going to be awesome. And I'm also reminded this week as well as man. And I've been challenged by sometimes of what man is able to do and how they will drive themselves to go beyond everything and anything that maybe is even possible. And one article I came across that reminded me was about the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. The Great Pyramid was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3,800 years. The builders responsible for the Great Pyramid of Giza, I'm sure, would have had more than a few coffee breaks as they um, worked on this uh, amazing structure and to keep their motivation on a day-to-day basis because the pyramid consisted of over 2.3 million stone blocks. The largest ones found in the king's chamber weighed between 25 and 80 tons and were transported to the site of Aswan 497 miles away. In total, 5.5 million tons of limestone, 8,000 tons of granite, and 500,000 tons of mortar used. And still, experts today have never really worked out how the individual blocks were moved into its place. I'm in awe of the understanding of the pyramid. And then I came across another article that I keep in um, an understanding of. It's the Mars One Project. Um, For those of you that maybe have never heard of this, uh, this is about... The Mars One mission, where their goal is to establish a permanent human settlement on Mars. And to prepare for the settlement, the first unmanned mission is scheduled to depart in 2020, so five years from now. Crews will depart for their one-way journey to Mars, starting in 2026. And then following crews will depart every 26 months 
after the initial crew has left for Mars. Mars One is a global initiative aiming to make this everyone's mission to Mars. Their efforts is that they want to enable the next giant leap for mankind. They have a young and growing organization with a team of eight. This team is supported by an impressive board of ambassadors and advisors from all over the world, including an astronaut, a Nobel Prize laureate, the former NASA chief technologist. And this is where I always stop when I think about this story. They had over a hundred countries donate to this initiative and over 200,000 people, 200,000 people apply for the first crew selection procedure. And when I think about the pyramids and the Mars One mission, I'm reminded again and again that, that man will push the envelope. Man will push the envelope when they see and they set their mind on something. They want to be part of something greater and bigger than they've ever seen in their life. Which what reminds me to recap of, as I look back of 2010, on December 25th, I was blessed to get married in Jerusalem. And as we look at, let me see if we can see the first picture of the Sea of Galilee. Um, we had some time to spend in the Sea of Galilee around uh, Tiberias. And I got to see and think of Jesus, his disciples. And sometimes I think, because we live in America, Northwest Arkansas, and a church is on every corner, that sometimes we forget that there's actually a real place, the Sea of Galilee, where actually fishermen live. And they did live in the past. And where he walked on water. And then I got to go to a, a place called Capernaum, if we'd see the next picture, which actually was, uh, it showed where Peter's house was. Let's see the next picture, where Peter's house was. And I thought about it. I was, I, was, I was in this week as I was thinking and preparing for the text going, Peter really did live. He really did have a house. He really did live in a place. He really did eat with folks. And he became more real to me. Peter became more real with me. The disciples became more real to me. Jesus became more real to me. And then, as on that particular day, December 25th, when Christy and I were there, we were lucky to be introduced to a couple archaeologists. And the archaeologists were like, hey, would you guys like to go to northern Israel, to Caesarea Philippi? And I'd be like, sure, that would be great, because I have no idea where I'm going. And so we got to go to northern Israel. And we got to see Caesarea Philippi. And it, it reminded me just to think back of like, what was it like when Jesus was with his disciples? What was it like? What was it like for him to talk, to eat, to live, to be with the ones that were calling him Lord and his teacher and loved him and he loved them? And then I got to this next picture where, you know, it's, it's, it's Stephen preached a couple weeks ago in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus had come to the district of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus was with his disciples. And what a day this was. Because this was the day that the disciples were being questioned by Jesus say, Who am I? Who am I? What do people say that I am? And Peter confesses to Jesus and said, You are the living God. You are the living God. And Jesus answered him saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjana, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth and be bound in heaven, and whatever you do, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let me go ahead and read Matthew 16, 21 through 23 again. 
from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me pray for us. Father, Father in heaven, as we come this morning and we get to worship you and know you, Father, there are people, there are people in this congregation, God, they're, they're tired. They're burdened. There are people, God, that don't know you. There are people, God, that are stressed out with debt. God, there are people that are just going through the motions. God, there are people that have never really truly put their faith and trust in you. God, there are people in this congregation that have so many things on their mind that, God, all they can do is just live and think about themselves. But, Father, I pray that this day, this day, today, God, this would be a day that they would look at you and go, you know what, I'm going to love you, I'm going to seek you, I'm going to find you, and I'm going to come to you. And so, Lord, I pray, God, would, would, would your message, God, would your message be of hope and refreshment and realizing, God, that ultimately what you did was amazing. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I want to ask you about throughout the morning, the question I want to ask you throughout the morning is, what are you setting your mind on? What are you setting your mind on? You know, you see, when you set your mind on something, you will adjust your life. When you set your mind on something, you will adjust your life. You will sacrifice. You will put money toward it. Whatever you're focused on, you will most likely be for that and like that. And you'll do everything when you set your mind on that. And what are you setting your mind on? That, that's the question I want you to think through as we look at today's text. In verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The first is Jesus' mind was set on the things of God. Jesus' mind was set on the things of God. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? It's because Jesus is foretelling his suffering, his rejection, his death, in his resurrection. You see, Jesus was with his band of brothers, his disciples. And, be, and Jesus began to show his disciples what he ultimately came to earth to do. Now, this was different than the previous teachings because the disciples, the disciples had just realized. Think about that. As, as you're looking at that picture before at the Caesarea Philippi, this was a time that Jesus and his disciples, they had been together. And before now, This was the first time that the disciples had actually realized, wow, who Jesus was. Can you imagine that? Being with someone, talking to someone, eating with someone. And for so long, then just then, on this one particular day, you realize, you're like, wow, this person is completely different than I thought. And wow, he's even more glorious. This is who Jesus was, the Messiah, the actual Messiah that everyone had been waiting for, but not in the way the Jewish people had imagined or even fantasized about. Jesus began to show and explain the more difficult truths about his divine plan and work, which ultimately is the picture of the gospel. 
He must go is important to point out because of the mission he was called to by his heavenly father, God had no other plan. God had no other plan than to send his son to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Jerusalem was a very important city. And as I even thought about my time in Jerusalem, it was a place, if we can show that picture of Jerusalem, this is a real place. It's an important city for so many different religions, but ultimately for us. Jerusalem, which means the foundation of peace, spoke of the seriousness of what would take place. Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi as far as from Jerusalem as he could be and still remain in Palestine. And after a brief pit stop, as we even see in the scriptures in the future, that the northern city they'll be in and Jesus and his disciples began to go through Galilee and Samaria and then on to Jerusalem, where the disciples and Brana brothers will begin to fear the death of what Jesus was predicting. Even Jesus said in Luke 13, 33, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem as it represented the city of sacrifices. And for him to be the ultimate Passover lamb, offering himself, offering himself, as we see in Hebrews 7, 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. I love this that he's focusing on Jerusalem. Jesus had his eyes dead set on Jerusalem because those eyes. Think about Jesus' eyes as he's at the Caesarea Philippi and he's telling this. When he's talking about Jerusalem, he's talking about focusing his eyes on the cross. He understands that he must go to to Jerusalem. His father's commanding him. He knows where he's going. His eyes are dead set, dead set on the cross. I love our Jesus. I love him. He's a warrior. His messages to his disciples that he would suffer once again went against the thoughts of the Jews in the day that the Messiah would actually, what he would actually be like. You know, the thought of a suffering Messiah servant was so far-fetched for them to understand and believe. You know, the thinking of that day was that he would conquer the Romans, establish Israel as the fourth force, and be the independent nation. For Jesus to talk about suffering was countercultural to their thinking. Of course, that's just how our great Jesus is, right? Isn't Jesus countercultural? He throws his disciples for a loop and He's always different than the world. But this should encourage us to understand how much Jesus actually had his mind set on the things of God. Because he had to suffer ultimately because of our sin. Think of it. He knew. He had his eyes on the cross. He had to go to the cross because of our sin. Your sin. The sin of the world. People all over. In Colombia, Brazil, Egypt, Middle East, all over the world. He knew. That he had to go to the cross for people, for mankind's sin. Even my daughter, Nora, her sin. Because he knew what sin would do. He knew by having a relationship with the Father that the Father was holy. Holy and righteous above all things. 
And that sin was offense to a perfect and holy God. And that if this sin was not paid for, it would be separating every man, every child, every woman, every person from having a relationship with God. It would be a separation of eternity from a gracious and good God. Eternal separation. I just can't fathom that as I was even thinking through the suffering of what Jesus was even thinking through, of what that actually actually meant. Jesus had always had the big picture in mind the whole time because of his union with the Father in heaven. To show the human side of Jesus, we see in Luke 22, 42 through 44, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Please will you show that picture of the Garden of Gethsemane? As I walked through the Garden of Gethsemane, I thought about the blood. I thought about the prayer. And I thought about what he was willing to do. And I sometimes wonder, are we so familiar with Christ? Are we so familiar with earthly things that we forget our Heavenly Father and what ultimately he had his son do? And think about this place. Think about the agony and the prayer of what it meant to actually know what he was about to go to. And we even see... In Matthew 12, 40, the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of earth. And also in Matthew 17, 22 through 23, as we've read, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You can see, you can see once again, that even though Jesus is telling this message to his disciples, just the magnitude of what he was talking about. That he must go to Jerusalem. That he must suffer. And that the suffering would actually come from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes. These three groups of religious leaders made up of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Council, which actually its headquarters was in Jerusalem. The elders were the leaders of the different tribes all over throughout Israel. The chief priests were mostly Sadducees and the scribes were mostly Pharisees. These were the men. These were the men that were the most religious of the day. And these were the men that Jesus always clashed with. And I just think about this time and time again as he's with these men. And you know what's interesting? As you think about Jesus and as he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer, he went to them. He wasn't scared of them. He knew what he was set to do. He knew what he was what he was asked to do by the Father. These were the men that were the most religious of the day, and these were the men that Jesus would always clash with the most. They were the ones that ultimately would have Jesus crucified. And we know from Scripture that Jesus never had a fair trial. They already had a verdict. So technically, when you're looking at Jesus being killed, the context might be better, better say that he was actually he was murdered. He was murdered. Our Jesus was murder. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of these men. When Jesus having this conversation with his disciples, it must have been very, very difficult. You know, think think about conversations that have been very important in your life. And maybe it's like a celebration or a new kid or getting married and certain things. And people say something to you and you just, you, you miss some things. And, and I think about this particular conversation with Jesus and his disciples and what he's sharing with them and what's going through their minds. And it must have been very, very difficult, confusing, and not really grasping what our Jesus, what our King was actually saying. 
earlier, they had just understood for the first time that, that he was the, the Messiah. Now he's talking about suffering. He's talking about, you know, going to Jerusalem, rejection, and being killed. And then the weight of what Jesus said would seem to be too much. Until we see Jesus say on the third day, be raised. This news should have been rejoiced and celebrated. But as we'll see in the next verse, the news of Jesus coming back to life did not compute with the disciples and ultimately Peter. We see in verse 22, and Peter, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Peter took him aside, took Jesus Christ aside, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter's mind was set on the things of man. Peter's mind was set on the things of man, and we know that because he was trying to keep Jesus from going to suffer, from being rejected and killed and rising on the third day. The fact that Peter felt comfortable to take Jesus aside and rebuke him shows the closeness and openness and love that Jesus and him must have had. And as I was even looking at this, this scripture right here, I was like, you know, that's a really bold statement to say to someone. Ultimately, when you know it's Jesus, but, but to think that he could say that he must have a loving and intimate, a relationship with Jesus that you know that we should have. That you should have, if you know him, you should have a a relationship with him that's close and intimate. We can gather from Peter that the message of Jesus going to suffer, be rejected and be killed and three days later be raised did not go over well. You can see that he was thinking from a human perspective of not only as his teacher and Lord, but his friend and that he'd been following and learning so much. The disciples had seen Jesus raise, raise people from the dead. But they were probably wondering that if he was the only one that could raise people from the dead, who would be the one that would raise him from the dead? Peter's human intentions to stop and keep Jesus from going to the cross seems right by human standards, but a finite mind has a hard time complimenting the mind of an infinite God and his eternal plans. A rebuke meant a word to someone that carried the idea of authority and was normally used by an official or a leader against someone under his jurisdiction. And this is a great picture of Peter, of Peter forgetting his ultimate authority and not realizing that he had just been revealed to him that Jesus was the Messiah. And even though he had known that, even though he had known that, not realizing the significance of who he was really talking to, it reminded me though, even when I wanted to get on to Peter, and I'll be honest with you, I'm going, Peter, how could you be so crazy? How could you be so stupid to do that? And then I think of myself. I can't help but see my own shortcomings of where I've failed to see the Lord correctly as I've walked with him. Have you ever seen your shortcomings? Have you ever seen your grace that God's had on you? And I think about Peter and it's like, wow, Peter, you made a huge mistake. And when things are in great, it seems it's easy to see clearly the Lord as you think of our life. But when trials and news that go against our thoughts come our way, we tend to forget that the Lord is in control and he is, so- he is sovereign. Peter's response to Jesus, as we see by saying, far be it from you, Lord, could be better translated as, may God in his mercy 
spare you from this. And this shall never happen to you. Confirms the earthly perspective that Peter ultimately had in his worldview. You see, these words were not from the heavens because what Jesus had already said he must do. That he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he would be killed and he'd rise again. If only he really knew what he was saying to Jesus. He was ultimately saying to the one and only one that could go to the cross and pay for the sins of mankind. God forbid you to die. When from the very beginning in God's sovereignty, it was the Father's will, as we see in Isaiah 53, that Jesus would be crushed. He had no idea that what he was requesting was to stop the redemption of mankind. Thankfully, I love the Lord. Thankfully, our great Lord is not persuaded by man and could not be stopped. We see in the next verse, Jesus' gracious response to his good friend and disciple Peter, who multiple times would speak without thinking. In verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want to stop here for a second. I want to stop here for a second and, and just ask you, you know, has, has following Christ just become a thing in your life? Has, has, has getting in the Word just another book? Is coming to the building of UBC and seeing people that are worshiping Jesus just another thing in your, in your weekly checklist? I, I'm serious. Like, I, I think about Jesus and I think about His disciples and I, and I think about the time that they spent and I think about the time on the Sea of Galilee and, and Jesus asking His disciples to follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And, and these men drop their careers. And they, they, they look at Jesus and they go, I will, I will follow you. I will give my life for you. I will seek you. And three years into it, three years into it, they come to the Caesarea Philippi, the place, the place that they had temples and they would sacrifice. And, and Jesus would say to them, he's like, the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And I, and I, and I think sometimes that, you know, as, as we're here in America and I think we're, we're here in Northwest Arkansas and we're abundantly wealthy and we have so many things. I sometimes think we think so much about the earth. I do. When, when I talk to Travis Burkhalter and I listen to his prayer life and I think about him as he's praying for the uncontacted people in the world and I think about that these people he's in the jungle with and he's got his machete and he's going and his wife and his kids are waiting and they're praying and they're begging that God will let him return, that, that Travis is going and, and he's hoping to contact these people, that this message that Christ went to the cross is going to the jungles all around the world. And I wonder if us in here, we are so familiar with coming to UBC for a couple hours a week. Following Jesus is, I got a little bit of my time. And, you know, he's great. But then I think about our Savior, that what he must do. And what, and what, 
what Jesus is asking us to do. And also I see Peter's, probably his, his shock to provoke this type of response from Jesus in a selfish and humanly thinking way. Peter must have thought that he telling Jesus that he ultimately didn't want him to suffer, be rejected and killed and to be raised on the third day meant that, that he loved him. And he only wanted the best for him. Not really thinking or understanding the eternal implications of what he was trying to dissuade this Jesus from doing. This was right in line with what Satan was wanting to do in Matthew chapter 4 verse 10. By tempting Jesus to worship him. And that he would not have to suffer if he would bow down. Peter was being used as a mouthpiece of Satan. Peter is being used as a mouthpiece of Satan, a stumbling block against the work of Jesus Christ. Another way was said and written, you are a hindrance to me, also is translated, you are a stumbling block, which is from scaling, a word originally used to refer to an animal trap. The term was also used to describe a person luring an individual into captivity or destruction. And Satan was trying to use Peter to set the trap. To set the trap and bait Jesus not to go to the cross. To bait him. That, that's, that's the father of this world. He's, he looks pretty. You know, he thinks, you know, he'll, he'll tell you something that really, sounds really, really good. But what it means at the end is destruction. It's destruction. The father of this world was trying to bait our Jesus from keeping his eyes on Jerusalem, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would resurrect. And Jesus reminds Peter why he's a stumbling block. Why he's a stumbling block, a hindrance to Jesus' plan. It's because he's not setting his mind on God's interests. Think of it. Peter walked with him, lived with him. This was a man that was just revealed that he was the Messiah. But then he was looking not to God's interest, but to man's interest. Once again, it's easy for us to look at Peter and say that he should have seen who and what Jesus was wanting to do by going to the cross. Trust me, I've thought about this time and time again as I think about Peter. And he's always the one that puts his foot in his mouth. What about you? What about, what about you? As, as you, you know, fall short and, you know, you might think of your own earthly desires and how sometimes it gets in the way. It gets in the way of you pursuing this Jesus. This Jesus that says, follow me, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But we fall short daily. And once again, we allow our own earthly desires, just like Peter, to get in the way of what God has planned. But we have to be reminded as what it says in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For as the heavens are higher than earth. For as the heavens are higher than earth. So are my ways higher, higher than your ways. And my ways, my thoughts, than your thoughts. My thoughts, than your thoughts. We can learn from Peter rebuking Jesus and then Jesus Christ's counter-rebuke is that God's plan of salvation never started with man. It's God's gospel because he's the one who's perfect. He created the story of redemption. God's gospel starts with him. And it reminds us, if the gospel starts with him and he's a holy and righteous God, it's about God, 
It's about God and His name and His glory in every place, city, neighborhood, country, all over the world, the universe. It's His name and glory that's on display. What a glorious God we have. Here are a few verses that help us understand how we can set our mind on things of God. Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, acceptable and perfect. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of your praise, think about these things. Ephesians 4, 23-24, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through de- deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And one of my favorite verses is Colossians 3, 2-5. I love it. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died. I, 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 want, I, want, I want you to think about that. If you are in Christ, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who's your life, appears, then you also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. These are earthly things right here. Sexual morality. Man, it's all over our country and the world. Passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. But as I think back about setting your minds on things above and not on things on earth, for you have died. And I think about that all the time is that Ultimately, ultimately is this. If your mind is set on the things of God, you will constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you will constantly turn to the gospel. The gospel makes you adjust your life to what God cares about and makes you take your eyes off yourself and look to the interests of others. Jesus was the ultimate example of this. As we saw in this scripture, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, be rejected, be killed, murdered, and rise again. Now think about that. Think about that, brother and sister in Christ that's in here. Can you imagine going and looking to a place of death? Looking to a place of death, knowing that it's going to cost you something. But ultimately, when you think of the gospel, Jesus was the ultimate example of this as he went obediently to the cross to suffer, die, and resurrect it. When your mind is set on the things of God, when your mind is set on the things of God, you will look at your work differently. 
You'll look at your work differently on a day-to-day basis. You'll see your work as a calling from God and that you're working before the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord has you there in your workplace. If you're a mom, if you're in sales, if you're a teacher, whatever you may be, if you own your own business, if you're retired, it doesn't matter. God has you set among people. And maybe, just maybe, that God is wanting you to be a minister, as we all are, who are in Christ, ministers of the gospel, to take this message to them. Just like Christ went to the cross. That's what he asked us to do. He asked us to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go and reach people for the glory of God, because that's what our God did for us. He went. He went to the cross. He suffered. He was killed. He went for us to have life. Or do you look at your work? From an earthly perspective, it's only about you. It's about your bank account. It's about what you drive, about what you have. God gives you everything. He gave you the job. An earthly mindset will only be about you, but a godly mindset will be about people. God puts you around people where you work. God puts you around people where you work. And when your mind's set on the things of God, you look at where you live differently on a day-to-day basis. Whatever neighborhood you might be, do you see your neighbors as brothers and sisters and that you pray for them and you love them and you see how you can be a blessing because God's been a blessing to you and he's had grace on you? There are people all over Northwest Arkansas and to the ends of the earth in different neighborhoods where people are broken and they need a friend. But having an earthly perspective will mean that you don't talk to your neighbors. An earthly perspective will mean you'll go right in the garage and you won't even look. But a godly perspective, a heavenly perspective will go, God loves them. He loves them. What's their names? I want to know them. What's their kids' names? How can I serve them and love them? When you have your mind on the things of God, you'll look at your hobbies different. And where you rest and find enjoyment. You see, hobbies aren't bad. You see, your hobbies are avenues to meet more people and introduce them to the great king that you know, Jesus. The one that has been kind and gracious to you all of your life. You can help show and share that satisfaction and contentment in Jesus is everything. And not in the things that you have or you're able to do. Hobbies are a great ministry opportunity because most people are using their hobbies to find purpose and contentment. In which we know as Christ followers... It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. You know, as I was preparing for this week, and I was in many different coffee shops around Northwest Arkansas, I had multiple conversations with people throughout the Fable area, and I would ask them about the Mars One mission. Can we put that back up, that that last uh, picture? The Mars One mission. And I would ask them, I'd share with them about this story of like, man, what do you think about them trying to put someone on Mars and going for three years, a straight shot, not coming back? I mean, what do you think about that? They're like, man, that's amazing. That is amazing. I'd love to be part of that. I'd love to be the first people to go to Mars. And we were talking about Jesus. We're like, what do you think about God coming down in the form of man, 100% God, 100% man, living a life that was perfect, goes to the cross, dies, resurrects. What do you think about that? And they're like, ah, oh, you know, I just don't know if I believe in that. It's like, really? I go, don't you think it takes faith for the people to apply and to think that like, hey, I hope these astronauts and man, men get this trip right to Mars because it's a one-way shot. And I'm sure there's not, you know, somebody up there that can uh, figure things out when things go wrong. And we were talking about this and I, and I, And as we were talking, and we were talking about faith, 
that individual said, you know what? I kind of see your point. Like, it takes faith. It absolutely takes faith. And as I think about you following Christ and you putting your faith and trust in Christ, I want to ask you, like, for, for those of you that are here, there are people here that have been growing up in church their whole life. They've read the Bible. They've done different things. They've been to Sunday school. But you know what? They don't know Christ personally. And hey, I would ask you, I would ask you to think and understand about your sin and how it separates you from a a perfect and holy God. And how that sin that separates you from a perfect and holy God, that it's eternal. But but not, but I want you to think about this for for those of you in here that don't really believe in this. Like think about how great and gracious God is. He came to us. And every other person I talk to, a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, a lot of my conversations with them, I always ask them this question. I'm like, you know what? you got to work your way to God. How great is it that my God came down and came to me? And he lived a life that I couldn't live and died the death that I couldn't, and he rose again. He's got power. And so for you that don't know him, I would, I would ask you, there will be elders and people here today that will want to talk to you and what it ultimately means to follow Christ. And for you, believer, I, I, I want to encourage you. As I thought through and prayed through this week, I want to encourage you. What are you setting your mind on? Is it the things of God? Is it the things of God? Because if it is the things of God, you will, you will go to the gospel. You will find life in Christ. You will read your scriptures. You will get involved in the ministries that are going to kids, middle, high school, college, all around, that are going to bring the message of hope to the world. You will see that this message is such a message that's so great, we can't hold it to ourselves. And that's my prayer to you. That's my prayer to you brother and sister in Christ, who's been a Christ Christ follower for years. And and this week, and and this week, I feel like the Lord's been discontinuing to press this on my heart because I met a young man this week. I met a young man this week that called himself a Christ follower for 14 years, 14 years. And I asked him, I said, man, if God dropped you into China, what would you do? What would you do? 14 years he'd grown up in the church. 14 years he'd call himself a Christ follower. He's like, man, I don't have a clue. I was like, well, man, tell me the gospel. And he's like, man, I don't know how to articulate the gospel. I was like, what? What? You've been for 14 years? And he's like, I'm sorry, man. He's like, I, I don't, I don't know what I would do. And that's my fear, is that there's some of us in here that say we know Christ, but as we follow him, think about Peter in them. They gave their life. Jesus gave his life. Jesus is asking for our all. He's not asking for a couple hours. He's asking for us to set our eyes on him, because ultimately, once again, he showed his disciples, he went to the cross, he suffered, he was killed, and he resurrected. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit is given to us for us to have power to go out to the ends of the earth where we work, where we live, where we play. This message of Christ is unbelievable. Do you believe it? Will you proclaim it? Will you set your mind on things above so that Christ, that God will get the glory? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for just this congregation. Father, I pray Oh, Father, I pray, Abba, Father, you love us. You love us. 
You love your children. People here, Father, that need to know you, Father, I pray that you reveal truth to them, Father. I pray that for those in here that are they're just they're they're down and out and they don't know you, God, and they're struggling, God. I pray that you would reveal just your love. Father, I thank you for this body. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for the fact that you put a senior pastor, Father, that loves this body, wants to shepherd it well. And God, as I pray for Brad Wheeler and his family as he leaves Capitol Hill, Father, I pray. That God, as he comes in here, Lord, that we'll embrace him, we'll love him. And that God, he will shepherd us to know you and love you and to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.